It is understood from this verse that the predominating deity of the moon is the maintainer of all the trees and plants 
throughout the universe. It is due to the moonshine that trees and plants grow very luxuriant. Therefore, how can we accept the so-called scientists whose moon expeditions have informed us that there are no trees of vegetation on the moon? Srila Vishwanath Chakravati the Kaur says, Samal Rikshadistatta Saeva Rikshanam Raja Soma the predominating deity of the moon is the king of all vegetation. How can we believe that the maintainer of vegetation has no vegetation on his own planet? Oh my so, um, now the first thing that um, we see here is that Srila Prabhupada is talking about the moon where the scientists have apparently had their expeditions. That's very clear in his purple. <laughs> it says, how can we accept the so-called scientists whose moon expeditions have informed us that there are no trees of vegetation on the moon? That is the moon we're talking about. But according to the charis, How can we believe, how can we, you know, if, if the, um, the dominating deity of the moon is the king of all, all vegetation, then there must be vegetation on his own planet. How could that be barren? So, now this is a very, um, uh, one of the controversial, <laughs> you know, discussions in that, there are many devotees who find it hard to accept what the Bhagavad Gita is saying. Um, there was, you know, someone was telling me um, they heard a lecture. One of the devotees is saying, "Oh, we're not talking about that planet. We're talking about Chandraloka or a different Bhagavad I think it is called, or the top of Mount Mary. That's where." The Son of God also has the But actually this purport is talking about the moon planet. But that's, someone mentioned that class and I said, well that devotee doesn't appear to believe the statements of Srila Prabhupada. He's trying to find some uh, other explanation. Maybe Prabhupada is. But it just appears very clear to me. Does anyone, is that? Clear to yeah, you're talking about the moon planet where the scientists have gone. They didn't go to the top of Mount Miriam, they didn't even know about that. They went to the moon planet. Yeah. So, even to the current day, what you speak of when Prabhupada gave a lecture on this, I think in London, and one of his initiated disciples left the moon. 
But I can't accept that. To say God. They've gone to the moon. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's quite a um, very significant. They never reach the moon. What's that? They never reach the moon. They never reach the moon? What moon? <laughs> so, uh, so let us discuss this. Well, you have to first establish this point uh, before we can move on to other points, which is probably a very significant discussion. Otherwise, the whole chapter, the whole, <laughs> you know, the whole Hamsa to do your prayers, how do you accept that? How do you accept Krishna? Uh, so, it's either Krishna or the science, as we would choose. I know where my mind is. So, um, yeah, in chapter 8, verse 25, the back of the year, there's this verse. The mystic who passes away <coughs> from this world during the smoke the fortnight of the waning moon or the six months when the sun passes to the south reaches the moon planet but again comes back. And there's a short, short purport there and he says that in the third chapter of Bhagavatam, Kapila Moon mentions those who are expert at three activities and sacrificial methods uh, on earth attain to the moon at death. These elevated souls live on the moon for about 10,000 years by demigod calculations. Uh, so, you know, there, there are two different types of demigod calculations. There's the calculations that um, on the planets, as far as I understand, up to the moon, that one fortnight of the bright moon is one day according to their calculation and the fortnight of the dark moon is their one night. So one of our lunar months is their day and night. So it's 10,000 years in that time frame. As you go higher and higher in the planetary systems, then uh, six months when the sun is in the north is their one day six months when the sun is in the south it's there one day and they live a thousand and thousand years of that calculation so um, and they enjoy life by drinking soma rasa they eventually return to earth this means that on the moon there are higher classes of living beings though they may not be perceived by the gross senses. So Srila Prabhupada just states very simply, they're there, but the gross senses cannot see them. Uh, that is not a very difficult you know, concept to understand because even on this planet, 
we all know that there are Sometimes people leave their body after committing suicide or in a state of intoxication uh, and, uh, or after committing some heinous crime and they kill themselves. And the punishment for that, term, terminating one's life before one should, is that one cannot get one's next gross body until that term of time is over and one may also have to remain in a subtle body for a little longer as a little extra punishment. So, uh, and of course if one has been very, very sinful, one may have to suffer like that many, many lifetimes, hundreds and hundreds of years. Most people on this planet accept that there are ghosts. And many have had uh, different types of experiences uh, with, with ghosts. Um, interesting also is that currently uh, the, the, um, <coughs> the American um, Air Force has declared that there are, they don't call them UFOs anymore, they call them UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. That there are craft which has technology that does not exist on this planet that repeatedly fly alongside the fastest uh, jets, um, uh, combat jets, etc. In the, uh, so there's a, a zone in America where they practice flying and maneuvers just off the coast. And they say that daily the pilots, and what is picked up by the pilots is also picked up by the, the battleships and the departments that, that all confirm there's something there. And um, one of the things, one of the pilots, um, he says when they got up close to one, it appeared to be a um, sphere that you could see through, but, um, you know, obviously, it was like some type of film, so you could actually see the, the, the sphere was there. And inside there was a square shape. So, you know, this is about the size of a you know, big jet, what have you. And these things can, you know, just fly uh, at will. They can just, you know, be going this direction and just go, boom, the other direction, do a bit of a light like that. Um, they don't even appear to have the shape of something that can fly. <laughs> Sometimes. So, uh, but they've identified these things are there. That we're not saying they're from outer space, but they're there. So, you know, they start looking to their enemies, you know, over the ocean like that. But they know that's not even really possible because no one has that technology. 
So, but there are others, you know, in the scientific world who say, well, this proves there's life on other planets. And um, uh, therefore, but then uh, if there's life on other planets, then we can't see them. But most people uh, who believe in, um, you know, follow Christianity, accept that there is heaven, although they can't see it, and there is, you know, uh, hellish places for punishment, they can't, they don't know where it is, they can't see it, but they accept it. And, and, and they are the same members who exist among the scientific community. But um, even, for instance, among the Hindu community, uh, and quite commonly these days in all religions, people will perform religious ceremonies but the meaning they're not particularly interested in because they know as soon as they start looking into the meaning of things, it's just not going to make sense to them. And even the priests themselves don't have confidence in the descriptions of the meaning of them, so they don't bother trying to explain. Uh, but if you do a bumi puja, a house puja, which they all want to do, uh, you are often prayers to the fire gods and the deities that exist on that block of land and preside over that particular block of land where you're putting your house, that they may protect you. And therefore you see that um, uh, sometimes they can be the most ferocious bushfire and it will burn every single house on the street except one which is not even touched. Yeah, they can't explain that. You know, they can't that. But what does happen is that in a ferocious fire, it creates its own weather system. A very ferocious it's, it's the weather system that's going around has nothing to do. It creates its own weather system where it generates um, you know, winds and what have you that blow the fire. Even though the fire is going this way, certain winds will also you know, spin around and push it back this way within the fire. Like that. Uh, you know, I saw one news article where um, you know, a person was saying you literally watch everyone's property burning the ground again. You know, they're gone, they're gone, it's coming towards us, we can't get out. Fire's coming, 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 coming like this. The whole fire's going that way. But just when it got to hit property, the wind changed exactly at that moment. And his one house was spared, and everything around him, 360 degrees, was gone. So, when the two, because those living entities, we can't see them, but that's why they, they do them. So even on this planet, uh, there are, you know, one time in Hawaii, uh, there was a couple of the ladies, devotees, kind of they, they were standing watching uh, near the crater of a volcano, uh, flying saucer came out. They went to and uh, I think he said something like, "Was that friendly?" <laughs> 
uh, and throughout all of the ages. So even on this planet, you know, we live uh, and, and within this universe, people accept um, you know, that there are living entities or domains where civilizations of beings exist, but we don't know where they exist. We can't see it. We can't see that, that civilization or you know, the source of that technology or what have you, but we know that it exists. So, um, because, you know, from our understanding, most likely those um, UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena, would probably come from the lower subterranean heavenly planets where they are very technologically advanced, far beyond anything we can understand. Whereas in the upper heavenly uh, planets, they tend to have much more subtle uh, means of transport. Yeah. So, um, but these things, these things are accepted uh, all over the world because uh, people accept them, but if they're in the association with so called scientific minded people, they dare not speak even what they believe or what they have even experienced. You know, I, I have um, experienced myself uh, on occasions. Um, I used to go walking late at night with uh, a friend of mine. I used to love to walk at night. Actually, ever since I was a kid, I don't know why. Even when I was uh, like seven years old, my brother and I jumped out the window in the bedroom. We just wandered around the neighborhood for hours and hours and hours like that. And, uh, and then you know, come home. But we used to go to some very remote places in the country, the damn bush rangers bay, there are uh, cliffs down there, they call it bush rangers bay for good reason, because that's where the bush rangers used to, some of them used to hide out in this area. And people did disappear down that way uh, amongst that sort of lot. And uh, so there are a lot of ghosts or have you. Actually, the mentions I was reading also somewhere in the bottom of the time that when you get to the top of mountains, there are also deities there. Um, so sometimes when they have uh, mountain expeditions, you know, you've got to hope that the presiding deities of that mountain are favourable because you can get all the way up top and all of a sudden they tap. And one of the one of the things they do is they come sort of like in the form of a wind, like who's that, uh, Trinidad? Like that. They can take shelter within a wind, and as you're looking over the edge, admiring the sight, having a cigarette, they push you over the edge. So I never stand too close to the edge of the mountain. You, you, know, you hear that all the time. Someone's standing on the edge, and all of a sudden you fall and you think, you know, how? Push. But when I was down at uh, Bush Road in Australia uh, on a formal night, um, very so bright it was a moon you could literally see everything. It was almost like uh, almost like daytime. And uh, I was walking with my friend, 
we, as we were walking, the wind came and it was like two hands on my back and pushed me so hard that I stumbled forward and never fell over. I said to my friend, Do you see that? He said, What? He said, How strong that wind was? He said, What wind? We were standing side by side. And then, because uh, as, uh, as a teenager, uh, myself and some friends were working with the government, we actually put that um, bush walking track in there, along Cape Shampoo. Know, so if you go there today, it's the same track. We did all the fencing and everything like that. There's, um, there's a part there where you walk through like a cove of uh, tea trees, gnarly old tea trees, you know, the ones you see in the movies with the witches and that, that Transylvania. So it's sort of like a tunnel, so as we said, it's completely bright outside because of the moon, but the moment you step in there it's really dark and you can barely see light coming through, just enough to walk like that. It goes for about a hundred yards. It's quite, you know, it's a fair walk. As soon as we stepped in, the wind, the, you know, it was like, it was like wind, trees, this, you know, and it was all the way out, all, all the way to the end, and the second we stepped out, there's not a breath of air. So when we went in, there's no wind, we come out, there's no wind, and the whole way through, it, So, you know, there's, there's something, you know, there's, there's definitely uh, uh, things there. So, uh, many people you know, on this planet have experienced, literally, uh, you know, there, there are people who, uh, some clairvoyants who can, you know, just tap into uh, subtle beings. Of course, uh, you know, all these things can be exploited, exploited by uh, rascals and uh, for money, and, and, and that tends to uh, uh, add a lot of nonsense to that. But, so these, uh, you know, here Prabhupada mentioned very, very simply that this means that on the moon there are higher classes of living beings, though they may not be perceived by their processes. And so, here, um, we accept that on the moon planet, the one that Sri Prabhupada is talking about and he spoken in the Gita, the one that's spoken of in this verse, ruled by Solomon, that there is trees, vegeta vegetation, civilizations. People who live there are drinking sombrasa. You know, there are festivities, they're all nicely dressed, celebrations, they get together, uh, you know, they have homes. They live there for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, not under a rock or something, you know, there's a hole. <laughs> so, um, not under a room rock. So, now in the back of the gear also, Krishna says, 
In fact, you know, one of the reasons I so easily accepted the Bhagavad Gita when I first read it, when I read the Bhagavad Gita and the Devotion, I'd never met a devotee. And immediately the devotee until I'd read them both, covered the covers at the time. But I immediately accepted it. Because I could relate to everything in it. If it says to the demigods, that was very easy to, to relate to because by the grace of Krishna, I had since growing up to just these different experiences in life where Krishna shown me there is much more than what you can perceive in this world than what you can see with your eyes and your senses. There is so much more. It's very mystical. Like that. So I have no problem accepting that. Therefore, Krishna says here in Bhagavad Gita 15.12, the splendor of the sun which dissipates the darkness of this whole world comes from me. And the splendor of the moon and the splendor of fire are also from me. So of course, accepting that the moon and the sun are creations of God, personality of Godhead, who has unlimited spiritual and material potencies of all different varieties. It's not easy for us if we accept the principle of the Lord, because he's a chincha, inconceivable. Uh, it's not difficult for us to accept that his creations uh, you know, are quite wonderful in many different aspects. Including the moon. And um, so these, so most, uh, again, around the world, you know, there's a, a huge population of the world, the majority of the world, believe in one supreme God who is the creator of heaven and earth, everything. Some call him Jehovah, some call him Allah, Dharma, Vision, One Supreme God. The very dictionary definition of God is the One Supreme Person. The create from whom everything comes. And that, um, the source of everything, the resting place of everything. Again, if everything is coming from that one supreme person, that's quite a mystical concept in itself. That's that's a real uh, you know step of either just faith or if we have knowledge in faith backed up by knowledge, scriptural knowledge. But either way, they accept there is a supreme personality of God here. We can't see him. We know he's there. We've never seen him make everything, but he has made everything. If one can accept that factor, then how is it so difficult to accept that when he created the moon, there is something with those aspects too? 
do we say, I accept that God exists, but he can't create different subtle levels of dimensions that I can't see? Well, that'd be too difficult for God, and I can see everything. <laughs> In my senses. So, therefore, this verse here, Prabhupada mentions that um, he says, one should simply try to understand that the splendor of the sun, the splendor of the moon, and the splendor of electricity or fire are coming from the Supreme Personality of Godhead. In such a conception of life, the beginning of Krishna consciousness lies a great deal of advancement for the conditioned soul in this material world. The living entities are essentially the parts and parcels of the Supreme Lord and he is giving herewith the hint how they can come back to Godhead, back to home. So these are the contemplations, you know, the, these aspects. And this is an aspect for contemplation for the beginning. And of course, if one cannot. Um, get over that threshold of the connection between the Supreme Lord and the creation, the Supreme Lord in his inconceivable powers and in the creation, then even if one does take to spiritual life or religious life, their knowledge, is, their faith is always very um, weak. And therefore, quite often, you know, they may, you know, uh, neophytes may worship the deity or go to a temple or a mosque. If they have some particular desire to be fulfilled, then when that's fulfilled, that's about enough. I've done enough. That's, <laughs> I've got what I wanted, but uh, I'm certainly not going to run around like a mad man to proclaim. God created this, God created that. That's good much. So, um, um, or what happens? Proverbs says that um, religion without knowledge, the scientific philosophy, just becomes a sentiment and fanaticism. And therefore, if someone, if they, if people do take up some spiritual process, religious process, if someone tries to inquire them, then can you explain this or explain that? That, according to their own um, uh, sentiments, you know, they will sometimes accept one thing, not accept another, uh, and. Or they will, you know, just um, uh, speculate to what seems to satisfy their own mind and senses. They feel good about that particular answer. Okay. Religion without philosophy is sentiment. Turns into fanaticism. Pushing something that's a foolish concept of religion or spirituality. Um, Philosophy or science 
without religion is just mental gymnastics. You know, just removing the Supreme Lord and his inconceivable potencies from science, from philosophy, is just uh, mental gymnastics. That knowledge has no value. So then, uh, he does go on to say that uh, so if one can understand that the light and splendor of the sun, the moon and fire emanating from the Supreme Personality of God of Krishna, then one's Krishna consciousness will begin. The moonshine is so pleasing that people can easily understand that they are living by the mercy of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Without his mercy there cannot be sun, without his mercy there cannot be the moon. Without his mercy there cannot be fire, without the help of the sun, moon and fire, no one can live. These are some thoughts to provoke Krishna consciousness in the conditioned world. So at least that understanding sometimes they have. That this is God's mercy. You know, how is it that we have the sun in the sky in a perfect position that we get this uh, you know, uh, wonderful opportunity to live and breathe, uh, and, and, and everything is uh, provided, the foods, the trees, everything like that. Um, and all the living entities, uh, you know, and the ocean, and the air, they're all getting this benefit from the moon and the sun. So, the next verse, of course, describes that. Um, it says, I enter into each planet by my energy that stay in orbit. I become the moon and thereby supply the juice of life to all vegetables. So, the moon, as it's described here, is the especially potent in manifesting the growth of trees, plants, creepers, herbs, and the particular medicinal effect that they may have within the ore. As Prabhupada puts it, the you know succulent, juice, uh, juicy vegetables and fruits. So what we see is that these days, instead of allowing the sunshine and moonshine to allow the fruit to ripen to its full, tasty, juicy, succulent form. What they do is, because they want to sell it overseas and transport it for money in bulk and stack it, therefore they pick it while it's really hard because it doesn't bruise and they artificially ripen it out of the moonshine, out of the sunshine and therefore there's no taste. Literally, the taste depends upon it ripening in the moonshine and the sunshine. And they can't produce the taste. You know, only the moonshine and the sunshine can produce the taste and the goodness of fruit and vegetables. Otherwise, they ripen it up artificially, they lose some of their goodness, their taste, their flavour, and their juiciness, everything. So you eat it. And it's like eating plasticine or you know, some artificial food. It doesn't even taste like a fruit. So, as a young child, we had a big apricot tree in the backyard. And uh, over uh, when they ripened, somewhere in the summer, 
Uh, we, we would just climb up that big tree because we were kids. We'd just sit there and uh, for a long time we would just uh, eat these uh, apricots. The flavour was so strong. Uh, the juice, you know, running down our little, you know, all over our shirts. And never forget it. You go into a shop now, you buy an apricot, there's no juice. Unless you bought it from some, uh, you know, fresh from the local, if the local produce is there, you'll get some fruits and, and what have you that's got juice. Otherwise, without the moonshine and the sunshine, it's completely, they're not worth eating. So, uh, therefore, as we see here, if the moon, if the moon has the potency to do that here on Earth, and that is uh, the arrangement controlled by the particular demigod, um, just as we know that on the sun, the sun god is there, along with Surya and Orion, the Lord also resides there. So not only the sun god resides there, but also um, uh, Surya and Orion also has uh, like a, uh, a Vaikuntha abode there. In the same way, on every planet, um, here Krishna says that uh, by his potency, uh, this, this verse here is very interesting, he says that it is understood that all planets are floating in the air only by the energy of the Lord. The Lord enters into every atom, every planet, and every living being. This is just, that is discussed in Brahma Samhita. Uh, it is said that one planetary portion of the Supreme Personality of the Paramatma enters into the planets. So in each planet is a form of the Lord. That is worshipped by that particular deity. So Surya Narayan is worshipped. So when we chant the Gayatri Mantra, which in one sense, the Brahma Gayatri is a prayer to the Sun God, but actually, it's a prayer to the Lord of the Sun God, uh, Surya Narayan, more so, if we can understand that part. But even more than that, ultimately, it's a prayer to Srimatra Radharani, because the sunshine is a reflection of the Brahma Jyoti, and the Brahma Jyoti is the Lord's spiritual energy whose supreme form is that of Shmaya so, so, according to our understanding of what our meditation will be when we chant that Vajra Mantra, he says, uh, So, due to his entrance, everything is appropriately manifest. When the spirit soul is there, a living man can float on water. So, when we can float, we can dog paddle, we can swim. But when the living spark is out of the body and the body is dead, the body sinks. As soon as someone has drowned, down they go. Of course, you know, as Prabhupada says, when it is decomposed, it floats like straw and other things. But as soon as the man is dead, he at once sinks in the water. Because his soul is there, he can, he can float. Similarly, all these planets are floating in space, and this is due to the entrance of the supreme energy of that supreme personality of Godhead. 
His energy is sustaining each planet, just like a handful of dust. If someone holds a handful of dust, there is no possibility of that dust falling. But when one throws it in the air, it will fall down. And similarly, these planets which are floating in the air are actually held in the fist of the universal form of the Supreme Lord. By His strength and energy, all moving and non-moving things stay in their place. Were it not for him, all the planets would scatter like dust in the air and perish. Similarly, it is due to the Supreme Personality of Godhead that the moon nourishes all vegetables. It's because of Krishna's arrangements that the moon is where it is, moves as it does, and, and it, uh, through uh, Krishna empowering a particular demigod, it then nourishes all the different uh, uh, vegetables and fruits and trees like that. Due to the moon's influence, the vegetables become delicious. Without the moonshine, the vegetables can neither grow nor taste succulent. So, um, so here, of course, um, what we can uh, further take from this uh, verse here, we describe here, uh, you know, this is the inconceivable potency of the Lord. Is within every atom. So whatever particular quality an atom has, and of course within atom, within, you know we have electricity. You get the positive and negative charges. Right? So electricity has that ability to produce that fire or energy because of the positive and negative charges. Krishna is within there, maintaining that type of fire, the fire of the sun, and the fire within the, the abdomen. So then when we think about it, if we go into the supermarket, and you know, we put it and we think, oh, I've got so much money, why do I need God? With a wallet full of money, go and buy all my you know, things. What has God got to do with it? That's what the average person thinks. You know, these people are wasting the time. But then, if they're so independent, then we might ask, okay then, um, next time when you're on your way to the supermarket, how about you get your own sun? And get your own moon? And get your own atoms? Your fridge? <laughs> so, we're completely dependent upon the mercy of the Lord. That's a fact. And also, He is within the heart of every living entity. Now this, this one really fascinates me. Is that, where is the Lord situated with the living entity? Who can tell me? Super soul. Yeah, and where is He situated? In the heart. In the heart. Like how? I remember reading in the Gita that it's between the lung and the heart and something like that. Sitting side by side. Yes. Yeah. Anyone else want to add to that? Each body cells got glory to Each what's that? Each of what any like all the cells got glory inside. Every every cell in the body. It, it, the Lord is within every atom. 
Yeah, so, and, yeah, and, and any living, uh, if it's an independent living cell, there's a, a soul there, and, and, and super soul. But he is also, although he sits side by side, he actually is also the soul within our soul. And, and you know, he literally is the potency of, just as he gives the potency for each planet, they have particular qualities and characteristics. He exists as the soul within the soul, the supreme soul within the soul, awarding each soul their particular individual ability to expand the bliss of the supreme person of God in the relationship with him. So that, you know, that is mentioned in uh, Bhagavad Gita 8. Uh, 11. So, 8, 9. So whenever we think of God, whether we think of him as Allah, Jehovah, Krishna, we think of him, he must have these qualities. One should meditate upon the Supreme Person as the one who knows everything. Who is the oldest, who is the controller, he controls everything. Who is smaller than the smallest, who is the maintainer of everything, who is beyond all material conception, who is inconceivable and who is always a person. He is luminous like the sun and he is transcendental beyond this material nature. Now, this part where he is smaller than the smallest, Prabhupada mentions in the purport, he is smaller than the smallest. The living entity is one ten thousandth part of the tip of the hair. So that is referring to the soul. One ten thousandth part of the tip of the hair. But the Lord is so inconceivably small that he enters into the heart of this particle, into the heart of the soul. So he is on a cosmic scale, uh, on an you know, atomic or even the spiritual atomic soul, it is his presence within there that allows each and every aspect of material spiritual creation to be as it is with the qualities it has. That is why. So, uh, therefore, uh, for us, of course, basically what we understand, God is all good. He's all merciful. He's supplying everything to everyone. The sunshine is there in plenty. Even the most sinful person is still getting that sunshine. Therefore, there's the same. The moon does not withhold its moonshine from the courtyard of a crooked person. Therefore, even in prison, they let them go out and do a little walk in the courtyard. Get some of that God's mercy. Yeah. Even the most simple of God's mercy. So, he's, he's, he's all good and he's all merciful. What to speak of, as we've heard in the previous chapter, if someone uh, performs devotional service to the Lord, and especially as prominent in chanting the holy name of the Lord without offences, 
love and devotion, what to speak of that person. And therefore, uh, those devotees, Krishna explains that, I'll just read this one last verse just to finish. Uh, in chapter 9, Mm. Chapter, uh, text 29 I envy no one nor am I partial to anyone I am equal to all but whoever renders service unto me in devotion is a friend is in me and I am also a friend to him so um, we should always try to meditate upon the all good merciful Lord we are dependent upon him for everything. And of course the very very next verse in the Bhagavad Gita from that one, I can't help myself, is that I am the Noah of the Vedas, Krishna says, I'm the compiler of the Vedas, I'm the goal of the Vedas. Okay. So if we want to tap in to that merciful Lord and know the science of devotional service, how to connect with him and go back to Godhead, he gives the Vedas. And he's so wonderful, not only does he give the Vedic knowledge, he says, okay, if you can't understand, I'll speak it in such a way that even the common person in Kali Yuga can understand, I'll come and speak to Bhagavad Gita and I will teach the essence of Vedas myself. And if you still can't understand that, I will come as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and I will show you how to put that into practice. <laughs> and if you still can't do that, I will give the easiest process, you just chant Hare Krishna, eat some prasada, here, if you can sit and hear these scriptures, then you can go back to God. That is your verse of the Lord. Right. Any questions? Good.